0: Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Genesis chapter 42, Genesis 42, reading verses 1 to 5. We read, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus, the sons of Israel came to buy grain among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Last week, I was at the Free Church General Assembly and I was coming out of one of the meetings when all of a sudden. Uh, I bumped into my sister and my brother-in-law. Uh, they were probably the last people on earth that I was expecting to see on the Royal Mile on a Monday evening in May. In fact, I was so taken aback that I nearly walked past them, I could hardly speak to them, just uh, so shocked because there I was thinking that they were they were up in allness. And yet here they were in Edinburgh. This morning we're continuing our studies in the life of Joseph and we're looking at the unexpected encounter that his brothers have with him in Egypt. It's their first meeting in over 20 years. We're looking at these verses under three headings. An unprecedented famine, then an unexpected meeting, and finally an unhappy return. An unprecedented famine, an unexpected meeting, then an unhappy return. First, an unprecedented famine. Look at verses 1 to 5, where the author focuses on the unprecedented famine that Jacob's family family experienced. The unprecedented famine that Jacob's family experienced. Verses 1 and 2, we see the direction. The narrative opens with Jacob discovering that there is grain in Egypt, beginning of verse 1. In Genesis 41, we saw that there was famine in all the land, We also saw that the famine was severe over all the earth, but Egypt has grain. And Jacob learns that grain has been sold in Egypt. Upon discovering this, Jacob gives directions to his sons in verses one and two. He asks them why they're looking at one another. They they are simply sitting and staring at each other. They're very indecisive. They're very inactive. And Jacob asks them, "Why are you looking at one another?" And so Jacob gives him directions. He tells him that he has heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. He tells him that they should go down and buy grain. And he tells him that they should do this so that they may live and not die. We can move from the direction to the departure in verses 3 to 5. Uh, the author tells us who made the journey in verses 3 and 4. We read that 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. We also read that Jacob didn't send Benjamin to, Joseph's brother. Back in Genesis 37, we noted that Jacob had 12 sons by four different women. Joseph and Benjamin were the sons whom Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel, bore to him before her death. And now we read that Jacob didn't send Benjamin with the other sons. And we're given the reason why Jacob didn't send Benjamin. He is fearful that Benjamin might experience harm, might experience tragedy, might experience severe injury. It's interesting that he doesn't have the same concern for his other sons. It would seem that the affection and the attention that he had once lavished on Joseph has now been transferred to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And the author closes the section by making a summary statement in verse 5. We read, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. The author is highlighting that this is the reason for Joseph's brothers going down to Canaan. The land of Canaan has been afflicted by the severe famine, and so the brothers have no other option, no other course, but to go to Egypt. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see an appointed crisis. An appointed crisis. That's what we see in Genesis 42. The land of Canaan has been afflicted with a severe famine, which Genesis 41 tells us had been appointed, sent by God himself. The famine is so severe that the lives of Jacob and his family are now hanging in the balance, and so Jacob sends his sons to go to Egypt to get grain. And what we'll see is that this is the Lord's appointed means of reconciling this estranged family, not only to one another but also to himself. This is an appointed crisis. And that is very important for us to reflect on. Sometimes the Lord will use times of crisis as his appointed instrument in the lives of his people. We might call it severe mercy. Or we might call it uncomfortable grace. Tim Keller writes... The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of our sin. But it does teach that for Christians, every difficulty can help reduce the power of sin in our hearts. Storms can wake us up to truths we would never otherwise see. Storms can develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility and self-control in us that nothing else can. And innumerable people have testified that they found faith in Christ and eternal life only because some great storm drove them to God. Keller concludes by making the point that there is mercy deep inside our storms. There is mercy deep inside our storms. And maybe you can see this in your own life. Maybe you can see how it was the Lord's severe mercy how it was his uncomfortable grace that first drew you to himself. Or maybe you can see how it was the Lord's severe mercy, his uncomfortable grace, where you really grew, you really developed, you really matured as a Christian. This morning I want to ask you, friends, whether or not you believe in a God who is wise a God who is powerful, a God who sovereignly appoints times of crisis to accomplish his good purposes in the lives of his people. Do you believe this, friend? Do you believe in a God of severe mercy? Do you believe in a God of uncomfortable grace? Do you, do you believe this? Second, we have an unexpected meeting, look at verses 6 to 28, where the author now focuses on the unexpected meeting that Jacob's sons had with Joseph, the unexpected meeting that Jacob's sons had with Joseph. Verses 6 down to 17, we see the first meeting with Joseph. The author sets the scene, verses 6 to 8, he tells us that Joseph was governor in the land, that he was selling to all the people in the land. He tells us that when Joseph's brothers saw him, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. He tells us that Joseph recognised his brothers, that he treated them like strangers, and that he spoke harshly to them as he said, where do you come from? And he tells us that the brothers didn't recognise him. And it's been over 20 years since these brothers had sold Joseph as a slave to Midianite traders. And now here's Joseph. And he's walking like an Egyptian. And he's talking like an Egyptian. And not just any old Egyptian, but an Egyptian ruler, an Egyptian lord. The brothers don't recognize him. And Joseph proceeds to accuse his brothers of being spies. Look at verses 9 and 10. After they've told him that they've come from Canaan, he asserts that they're spies who have come to see the nakedness, the vulnerability of the land. Brothers respond by telling him that they are honest men who have come to buy grain and they are the sons of one man. But Joseph refuses to listen. And once again, he asserts that he believes that they are spies who have come to survey the nakedness, the vulnerability of the land of Egypt in this time of crisis. And the brothers respond by telling him that they are twelve brothers the sons of one man in Canaan, and they say to him, one of our brothers is no more, and the other brother, the youngest brother, he is with our father. Having heard this, Joseph accuses them for a third time of being spies, but he isn't finished. And he proposes a test. He swears by Pharaoh's life that they will be permitted to leave Egypt only if their youngest brother comes. He then proposes that one of these brothers might return to Canaan to fetch the youngest brother. The rest must remain in Egypt. And he claims that this will test the truthfulness of their words. And after saying this, Joseph has them imprisoned, incarcerated, confined, put in custody for three days in verse 17. We can move to the second meeting with Joseph in verses 18 to 28. On the third day, Joseph makes a solemn declaration. Look at verses 18 to 20. He tells the brothers that he is a man who fears God. And he tells them what they're to do so that they may live. If they're the honest men whom they claim to be, then he says only one of them needs to leave, only uh, one of them needs to remain behind in Egypt. The rest, he says, can go and carry grain for their households. And after doing this, he says, they are to return with that youngest brother So that their words will be verified and they will not die. Joseph's plan has changed. He had originally said, all of you must remain in Egypt apart from one who will go and fetch Benjamin. He now says, all of you can return to Canaan apart from one. But you're still to bring Benjamin, that youngest brother. And after hearing this, the brothers are filled with dismay. Look at verses 21 to 24. They speak to one another. And they suggest that this distress has come upon them because they are guilty of seeing the distress of Joseph and they refuse to listen to his begging. Reuben the eldest interjects and he claims that he had warned them about sinning against the boy, but they had refused to listen to him. Now what Reuben is saying and doing is really less than helpful. Reuben is just looking out for his own interests and he's saying to the brothers, well, if anyone shouldn't remain in Egypt, it's me. I'm the one who tried to make sure that Joseph was okay. One of you other guys, you'll have to take one for the team, but I should go back to Canaan because I had tried to act for Joseph's benefit. And as he hears this very emotive discussion, Joseph turns away and weeps. He then returns and he has Simeon, the second oldest, bound before their eyes. And Joseph goes on to give private directions to his servants in verse 25. He orders them to fill the bags with grain, he orders them to give the men provisions for the journey. And he orders them to replace each man's money in his sack. This then brings us to the discovery of the money in verses 26 to 28. The brothers load their donkeys and they depart, leaving poor Simeon bound and behind in Egypt. Upon coming to the lodging place, one of them opens his sack and discovers the money in his mouth. After discovering the money, he tells the brothers, my money has been put back, here it is in the mouth of my sack. It's quite a nice rhyme, isn't it? My money has been put back, here it is in the mouth of my sack. And as they see this, the brothers' hearts fail them and they turn to one another and they ask the question, what is this that God has done? Well, as we consider these verses, friends, we can see an awakened conscience. An awakened conscience. That's what we see in Genesis 42. Joseph's brothers display this awareness that this Egyptian is treating them badly because of the bad way that they had treated their brother Joseph. They admit their guilt. And they admit that their present distress is entirely, thoroughly deserved And when they discover the money in their sacks, they are convinced that it's nothing more than an act of God. It's an act of divine retribution. Their consciences are very much awakened. And friends, that is very important for us to reflect on. In his book on the life of Joseph, Liam Gallagher writes, Before we are ready to feel the medicine of God's love being poured into our hearts... We too must face up to our sin. That is why the confession of sin is so crucial to Christian life and worship. It is the recognition that we can never be of any use to God or to our fellow humans until we've acknowledged what we really are. It will do us no good to pretend that our faults and failures in the past are due only to mistakes or circumstances or upbringing or environment. Gallagher continues by making the following point. Contrary to today's popular wisdom, guilt is not always bad. It is good to feel bad about something we have done that is bad, for only then can we begin to move forward. Maybe you're here today, friend, and you're not a Christian. And you're feeling very convicted. You're feeling very conscience stricken over something that you've said. Something that you've thought. Something that you've done. Or maybe you're here today and you are a Christian. And yet you're also feeling very convicted. You're feeling very conscience stricken over something that you've thought. Something that you've done. Something that you've said. My friend, it is not a bad thing to feel conscience stricken. It is not a bad thing to feel convicted and aware of your guilt before God. In 1 John chapter 1 we read, "If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness." So this morning I want to ask friends, how's your conscience? Now please don't think for one minute that I'm speaking to the person in front of you. I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to every single person in this room. How is your conscience? Is it troubling you? Are you sitting here today and you're feeling very, very guilty? Very convicted? Very conscience-stricken? Well, if so, friend, I want to encourage you To go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He's the one who is able and willing to cleanse his people. He's the one who is able and willing to cover all the shame and all the guilt of his people. He's the one who's able and willing to cast every sin of his people as far as east is from the west. He's the one who's able and willing to carry away the sin of his people as the great Lamb of God who, who removes and takes away the sin of the world. So friend, if you're sitting here today, whether you're or not you are a Christian, if you're sitting here today, I want to encourage you to just go to Jesus. If your conscience is bothering you, if you're feeling convicted, if you're feeling utterly rubbish about yourself, go To Jesus. Can't make it any clearer. Can't make it any more simple than that. But then third and finally. We have an unhappy return. An unhappy return. Verses 29 down to 38. Where the author now focuses. On the unhappy return of Jacob's sons. To their father. The unhappy return of Jacob's sons. To their father. Verses 29 to 35. We hear the report. The brothers return to their father and they tell him about all that had happened to them. Verse 29. Now that word all, I hope you can see it, is interesting. These brothers had described themselves to Joseph as being honest men. Why, nothing could be further from the truth. These men's lives were characterized by deceit and by duplicity. For 20 years, these men had lied to their father every single day of every single week of every single month of every single year about what had really happened to Joseph. These men are liars. But now they start to tell the truth. And they tell their father about all that has just happened to them. And they start by telling their father about what Joseph had said to them. Verse 30, they refer to him as the man of the land, indicating that they still don't realise or recognise that this is Joseph, their brother. And they claim that he had spoken roughly to them and had taken them to be spies. They go on and they tell their father about what they had said to Joseph. Look at verses 31 and 32. They had told him that they were honest men. I wonder if Jacob's eyebrow went up when he's got these... Lying, sons, sin. Well, we told them we were honest men, Dad. They had told him that they were 12 brothers, the sons of one man. And they had told him that one of their brothers was no more, while the youngest was still with their father. They then tell their father about how Joseph had responded, verses 33 to 34. He had told them that he wanted to test them to see whether or not they were honest men. He had told them to leave one of their number behind. To then take grain to their households, to go on their way and to return with their youngest brother. And he told them that if they followed his instructions, he would know that they were honest men. And he would deliver their brother to them. And he would then permit them to trade in the land. And after bringing this report to their father, the brothers empty their sacks and Jacob sees that every man's bundle of money was in the sack verse 35. Now after hearing the report, we can see the response in verses 36 to 38. We see the initial response of Jacob. Look at verse 36. He accuses his sons of bereaving him of his children. As far as Jacob's concerned, Joseph's no more. Simeon's no more. And he's now on the verge of losing Benjamin as well. And all Jacob can say is, all this has come against me. We move from the response of Jacob to the suggestion of Reuben. Look at verse 37. Once again, Reuben speaks. And once again, what he says is less than helpful. He suggests that his sons can be taken as a pledge for the life, the the safety of Benjamin. He says to his father, if I do not return with Benjamin... You can kill two of my sons it 's an absurd suggestion where Benjamin will not simply have where Jacob will not simply have lost Benjamin, his youngest son, but will also lose two of his grandsons, the sons of his eldest son and heir Reuben and as Reuben is speaking, Jacob just cuts him off look at verse thirty eight he tells Reuben and the rest that Benjamin. Whom he refers to as my son, will not go down with them since his brother is dead and he is the only one left. Now, how do you think these other brothers are feeling? That there, these ten brothers are standing before their father, and their father is saying, I've got one son. Only one son matters, and that's my Benjamin. He continues. And he tells him that if any harm should come upon Benjamin, then his grey head, his grey hair would go down to Sheol, down to the grave, down to the underworld in sorrow. It's interesting that Jacob shows absolutely no concern for Simeon's predicament in Egypt. All he's concerned is about the preservation of Benjamin, keeping Benjamin out of Egypt. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see an abating confidence. An abating confidence. That's what we see in Genesis 42. If you go back to Genesis 28, you find the Lord appearing to Jacob as a young man. And he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. The Lord had promised Jacob that he would be with him, that he was committed to him, that he was for him. But following the premature loss of his wife, Rachel, and the presumed loss of Joseph, and now the potential loss of Benjamin, Jacob has lost all sight of this. Jacob is left saying all this has come against me. Or as some of your versions may have it. Everything is against me. Jacob's confidence in the Lord is abating. It is sinking. It is failing. We might say Jacob has no confidence left in the Lord. That's very important for us to reflect on. You see sometimes the bruisings and the buffetings the knockbacks and setbacks on life's journey can leave a Christian thinking and possibly even saying, everything's against me. Everything's against me. And the gospel announces to such people that whatever might have happened to them and whatever might be happening to them, the God who can never be wearied The God who can never be surprised, the God who can never be outmaneuvered, is for them. He is not against them. That is a glorious assurance that the Apostle Paul gave to the Romans who who were struggling with such views. In Romans chapter 8, he says to them, he reminds them, your God is for you. And if he is for you, then who or what in all of creation can possibly be against you? But someone might say, really? Is God really for me? Is God really committed to me? Because he's got a very funny way. He's got a very strange way of showing it. C.S. Lewis encapsulated such a view in his book, A Grief Observed, that he wrote following the death of his wife, Joy, from cancer. It's a harrowing book. Listen to these words. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. Might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? And I weighed up whether or not to share the next quote with you, but I think I will. Because Lewis goes on to say this. What chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers that Joy and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Not hopes raised merely by our own wishful thinking. Hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnoses, by x-ray photographs, by strange remissions, by one temporary recovery that might have ranked as a miracle. Step by step, We were led up the garden path. Time after time, when God seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. That's harrowing. That's the man who felt like everything, including God, was against him. And the Apostle Paul says to such a Christian, every Christian who might be wrestling with similar thoughts. You can know that God is for you. And you can know that he is not against you. And you can know this because he didn't spare his own son. But delivered him up. Handed him over. Handed him over to Gethsemane. The place of betrayal and arrest. Handed him over to Gabbatha. The place of torture and flogging. Handed him over to Golgotha. The place of crucifixion and death. Handed him over to the grave. For you. That is how far his love That is how far his commitment to his people will stretch. That he will not keep back his only son for his people. So this morning I want to close by reminding you, friend, that if you are a Christian, and maybe you feel like a rubbish Christian, maybe you feel like a weak Christian, maybe you feel like a wavering Christian, but if you are a Christian, if you are united by faith to Jesus you can be absolutely certain, you can be absolutely confident that whatever might have happened to you and whatever might be happening to you and whatever might happen to you, the God of Jacob is for you. The God of Jacob is on your side. And if God be for us, Who or what can be against us? Amen.